Hello and welcome. I'm Andrew Vieth, and this is Rebel History. Judge Netterer stood before a quiet courtroom and began to speak. The damage to organized society and to the government of this country is incalculable. It was amazing, widespread, but a short step to the undermining of those institutions which are so sacred to us. As for you, Mr. Olmsted, and I'll say to the rest also, that if you had shown the same enterprise, the same constructive force, the same organization devoted to legitimate, constructive enterprises in harmony with the law, the results would have been simply marvelous, and you all would have reaped a rich harvest. Roy Olmsted faced two trials as Whitney and Lyle brought charges against him in two separate cases. The first case covered all of the crimes committed up until the raid on Olmsted's home and relied heavily on wiretapping evidence. For political motives, prosecution of the second case was postponed for almost a year. The election for Seattle mayor would be taking place, and the Prohibition Office was hoping scandal from the liquor trial would help unseat wet-friendly mayor Doc Brown, running for his third term. The mayor had been exchanging political attacks with Reverend Ambrose Bailey, whom he dubbed Ambitious, Ambiguous, Ambushing Ambrose. In a speech at the Seattle Eagles Club, Doc Brown lambasted the corrupt system of prohibition. I am for temperance now, temperance in eating, in drinking, in religion, in all things. Temperance, that beautiful word, not prohibition, tyrannical, unreasonable, without meaning, making thousands of criminals. Doc's political opponents believed victory for prohibition in the courtroom could tip the election against him. The prosecution team for the government was helmed by U.S. Attorney Tom Ravel, tall, blonde, and with a face a bit like a hound dog. Assistant U.S. Attorney Cliff McKinney would also be working on the case. Over a year earlier, through an Irish political fixer, Olmsted had succeeded in bribing McKinney with $3,000. The young man's government salary at the time, a paltry $70 per week. Since then, McKinney had been providing him with details of the mounting case and the prosecution's strategy. Olmsted also bribed prohibition agent Richard Fryant, inducing him to provide a copy of the wiretapping evidence they'd collected. For his defense, Olmsted hired George Vanderveer, a litigator infamous for his compelling courtroom performances and nefarious clients. Vanderveer's strategy was to poke enough holes in the prosecution's case that it would be overturned on appeal and attack directly the government's use of wiretapping 
to collect evidence. The trial began in January 1926, arguments taking place before Judge Jeremiah Netterer, a short, even-keeled man with cropped brown hair, who strongly opposed the consumption of alcohol. Heaters were cranked on against the winter's cold, and the courtroom radiated a heavy-lidded malaise. The setting was emblematic of bureaucratic tastes. Bright light bathed muted green walls. Large mahogany tables for the legal teams sat reverently before Judge Netterer's perch atop his high bench. The case's 45 defendants sat in the first rows of benches. The rebellious bunch was composed of a diverse cast of characters. Ages and races of all sorts represented. The men from all ranks of Olmsted's organization, boatmen, salesmen, deliverymen, lounged jovially, chatting or reading magazines. Doc Hamilton, tall and dark-skinned, strode in dressed in a tweed suit. His restaurant, the Barbecue Pit, was a loyal customer of Olmsted's illicit booze. Capitalizing on the publicity, he had some of his employees bring down ham sandwiches and Alabama salad from the restaurant to serve the crowded courtroom. Last to arrive was Olmsted and his wife. He wore a dark suit and maintained a detached composure as he took his seat in the front row. The trial was quite the media affair. Across the nation, news outlets buzzed with excitement as Seattle's rum-running king stood trial. The streets outside the court building were lined with reporters and spectators looking for a glimpse of the notorious cast of the legal spectacle. The jury was selected by the end of the second day. They sat in stiff brown wooden chairs, dressed formally in three-piece suits, never looking quite comfortable. The prosecution dropped charges against Alfred Hubbard and three others, the government making good on its deal to protect him in exchange for his undercover informing. Crown Jewel of the prosecution's case was the large book of transcribed wiretapping evidence. Even though Assistant Prohibition Director William Whitney was the chief witness, he was allowed to remain in the courtroom for the duration of the trial. At night, he would coach his agents before they were called to the stand, forcing them to memorize lines from the great book. Vanderveer attacked both Whitney's presence in the courtroom and the use of the book during testimony but was ultimately overruled by the judge. The prosecution sought only to prove conspiracy instead of the actual act of rum running. So they put member after member of Roy's gang on the stand. A few flipped to save their own skin, including his transportation dispatcher and the elderly caretaker of one of his stash farms, providing damning evidence against Olmsted and the operation. The prosecution also convinced over 30 of Olmsted's customers to testify, threatening them with evidence they'd supposedly collected against them. They even forced William Boeing, Roy's friend and customer, to testify against him, believing his unimpeachable character would provide strong testimony for their case. The wealthy aerospace entrepreneur had been coached by his personal legal team and said little more than admitting he'd placed an order for whiskey with Roy. 
In one of the most notable moments from the trial, wiretapper Richard Fryant read a phone conversation between Olmsted and his transportation dispatcher that implicated Seattle Mayor Doc Brown. Business had been temporarily paused when the mayor had traveled to Washington, D.C., leaving the operation without his mayoral protection from hostile city officials, including his teetotaling political opponent in the upcoming mayor's race, Bertha Landis. Letting his men know it was back to business as usual with the mayor's return, Roy remarked, Yes, start work in the morning. I have seen Doc and all is okay. As the trial drug on for days and then weeks, its participants began showing signs of wear. The court's 300-pound bailiff often fell asleep in his large rocking chair, and his snores were often joined by those of Doc Hamilton, another serial snoozer. Driving to the court one morning, Roy and Elsie got into a car crash. Normally a calm and reasonable guy, Roy ended up brawling with the other driver on the wet city street. In their closing arguments, the prosecution called on the jury's duty to justice, while the defense looked ahead to an appeal, citing Washington state law that forbids wiretaps and the Fourth Amendment of the United States Constitution, which says people shall be secure in their persons and papers. After 32 days and 125 witnesses, the jury took less than a day to decide on a verdict. Olmsted was found guilty, along with most of the defendants. His wife and a handful of others, including Doc Hamilton, were found innocent. Olmsted was sentenced to four years hard labor at McNeil Island Federal Penitentiary and roughly $10,000 in fines. Bail was also set at $10,000 and he would not have to begin his sentence until the conclusion of his second upcoming trial. Prosper Greinick, Olmsted's top boatman, had jumped bail and fled to a remote region of British Columbia days before the Whispering Wires trial had begun. He evaded capture multiple times, escaping into the rugged wilderness. Following the trial, Olmsted drove to Vancouver, BC to try and negotiate his surrender. Booking a return trip aboard the Princess Victoria Ferry, Roy waited at the dock for his friend. Prosper showed at the last minute, and the two men planned his surrender on the journey back to Seattle. Greeted by Prohibition agents on their arrival, Prosper was arrested, but free on bail within 48 hours and ready to resume running booze. <laughs> 